for the God of breakthrough this morning, God who can bring deliverance. Amen. Man, I'm excited you're here. If you're a guest with us, thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Matt Darby. I get to be our teaching and campus pastor here on our Gilmer campus. If you're new to New Beginnings, uh, let me tell you a little bit about us. We are one church, but we do meet in two locations, um, which we have a campus here in Gilmer. We have a campus in Longview. And so on behalf of our lead pastor, Pastor Todd Connitz, and just all of our pastors, all of our staff, just thanks for being here. We are honored when uh, guests come to worship with us, and we're honored to have you today. I hope you feel right at home. And uh, we're on a, uh, the tail end this morning of a series that we're going to wrap up today, a little short series we've been in through the book of Philippians, uh, only in chapter one so far, called To Live is Christ. To Live is Christ. And we're kind of wrapping that series up. Again, this entire uh, three or four week series has been built around the words Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? And so um, we've kind of built this series around it. But as we kind of wrap up chapter one, I want to remind you of a few things. I want to remind you where all this began. And I want to remind you who it is that Paul is writing to when he writes this letter of Philippians. This, uh, we see the church at Philippi born in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we've touched on this uh, a little bit in the past weeks. In Acts chapter 16, we see the birth of the church at Philippi. This is a church Paul planted himself, and it began with an incredibly diverse group of people. That's how this church began. It began, there was a businesswoman named uh, Lydia, and Lydia was, uh, uh, she created fabrics and and sold them and was a very successful businesswoman. Paul presents the gospel to her. She comes to faith. Most uh, church historians believe that the church in Philippi began in her house. So she was this first convert and the church began in her house. We see Paul move immediately through chapter 16. He engages a girl who is demon possessed and she is being sold on the street for profit. And she's telling fortunes from the oppression that she is under. Paul delivers her. She comes to faith and, and, and is now a believer. So you've got Lydia and you've got a slave girl, right? And Paul is thrown in prison for delivering the girl who was oppressed by a demon. So he's thrown in jail now. And the jailer who was guarding him, Paul preaches the gospel to him. He comes to faith. So that's where the church in Philippi began. And you could not, you couldn't start with a more, uh, with, with more different, diverse and disconnected, with a more disconnected group of people. These three people would never have a reason for their lives and their circles to intersect, yet the gospel breaks through their differences, unites them together, and they become a church. That's what happens. Unites them together and they become a church. Here's why. Because the gospel does that. It unites us together no matter how different we are. I'll give you an example. One of my great friends in this life is uh, Brad Doherty. Pastor Brad Doherty is uh, 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 one of our executive pastors and serves mainly on our Longview campus, but gives oversight to a whole lot, lot of stuff. And Pastor Brad and I couldn't be more different humans. We, we, one, I'm much older than him, even though I don't look it. That's the first thing. The... <laughs> <laughs> the second thing is, you know, I love things like um, football and hair metal and ketchup, right? Because I know how to live my life. I'm making good choices. And 
Pastor Brad, he loves things like raising his own chickens and planting fruit trees and growing all of his own food and roasting his own coffee, right? That boy is one root vegetable away from a hippie farm. And we could not be... <laughs> I, I, I just know he's going to come to me and go, hey, Matt, I learned how to make my own cheese and I'm going to have to slap him, right? And yet somehow we are really great friends. And it's not because... Our personalities are the same. We couldn't be more different. But the moment he came to New Beginnings, we united under the gospel because we're both citizens of the same kingdom. And our differences, God broke through those, knit hearts together, and now he and I go to battle every week together uh, for the gospel. That's what you see here. You see this professional businesswoman, a slave and a jailer, and God says, that's the three I want to start a church. That's what he did. And so Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi. Now, there is a thread we've talked about over the past week that runs throughout the entire letter. It's a thread that runs all the way through, and it's this thread of joy. Paul mentions it, he says something about joy and rejoicing in every chapter of Philippians. He says in verse 4, rejoice. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. It's the thread that runs through. And yet, some of the things Paul talks about and some of the language that he uses does not feel very joyful. The verses we're going to look at today in verses 27 through 30 of, of chapter 1, there's some language in there we wouldn't associate with joy. Paul's going to use words um, like stand firm. He's going to use phrases like don't be frightened. Conflict, struggle, uh, uh, opponents. What's the point? The point is Paul wants these young believers, who, by the way, this, this is about eight years after he planted the church. So here's what that means. The oldest believer in this church has been a believer for seven to eight years. That, that, that's what you have. Very young believers. And Paul needs these young believers to take hold of a reality. That this life that they've been given in Christ, this new life that they are learning how to live, is not a playground. It's a battleground. That's what he needs them to take hold of. He needs for them to understand. And we need to understand. Living out this life for Christ is not something we play at. It is something we wake up every day and fight for. It's not a playground, right? It's a battleground. And Paul needs them to see the unity that they have together and the joy that they have in Christ because he's, he's pouring in joy and he's pouring in courage because he knows that as they stand in defense of the faith, as they stand firm when the world around them wants to see them fall, they're going to need to fall back on one another and the joy of Jesus. And so, which, which by the way, do you realize every day, you and I wake up and we engage in a culture that wants to see the people of God fall. You live in a culture that lives looking for the next person who says they belong to Jesus to make the big mistake. Every day, they're looking for us to fall. So, does that mean we have to be perfect? No. Nope, can't do it. It means we have to walk this life out in obedience to Jesus, surrender to him, saying yes to where he calls, going where he leads, doing what he says, even when it's risky. And Paul wanted this culture, this church in Philippi to know, you're in a culture that wants to see you fall. 
Um, so you're going to need one another, and you're going to need joy, and you're going to need courage. So let's look at how Paul kind of unpacks that. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 27. If you're there, let me hear you say the Bible is true. Do you believe that this morning? If you believe that, then every word we're going to read and the truth we're going to discover is for you. It's not for the person sitting beside you. It's for them too. It's for you. So let's see what the Holy Spirit has for us. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I got to be honest with you. It was hard for me to get past that verse this week. <laughs> it was hard for me to get past that. We're going to spend a few minutes with that here, here in just a second. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is the clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Lord, would you just take this true word and let us hear your voice in it, your Holy Spirit speaking to us. God, I pray for the next moments that, that we have together, God, that... Um, your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and we would open our hearts and allow it to teach us and correct us and strengthen us and train us and give us courage for what you've called us to do. We are your people. You are our shepherd. We want to hear your voice now. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, spend a few minutes on verse 27. Here's why. Because everything shifts. The entire chapter shifts on this verse. The, the whole thing kind of changes. Most biblical scholars say Philippians 1 verse 27, this idea of living a life worthy of the gospel, is the thesis statement of the entire letter. Here's what that means. It means that verse 20, in verse 27, we get the essence. We, we get the purpose of the letter. We, really, we see what's really on Paul's heart as he writes to the Philippian church. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Can you feel the weight of that statement? Man, if you can't, just, just let's sit with it for a minute. Feel the weight of live a life worthy of the gospel. <laughs> See, if this really is the thesis statement, if this is the essence of what Paul is wanting to say, that means everything that comes after this is meant to firmly establish this reality as preeminent in their lives. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Everything he says from this point forward is meant to establish that as a preeminent reality in their life. I want you to notice that first word, only. Only let your manner of life. Some translations of the CSB, uh, Christian Standard Bible, says just one thing. Right, only. 
Let your manner of life. This is, that, that word is there to grab our attention. It, it, it's it's uh, Paul saying, hey, listen up. You, you need to hear this one thing, right? Like any good parent, he turns to his kids, his spiritual children, to the church he planted and says, I need you to look at me. I need you to listen. I need you to remember what I'm about to say. Parents, you've done this before. You know that moment where you pull up to a place and y'all are about to get out and be in a social situation and you get all your kids' attention and go, hey, hey, all three of you, look here for just a minute. I got to tell you something, right? <laughs> we're going to go in here. I need you to remember some stuff, right? Here's what that sounded like for me growing up. Uh, Matt, we're going to go in here and you're only allowed to go through the buffet line one time. Do you hear me? Do not go through again. <laughs> Don't do it, right? It would be stuff like, you know, Stacy, do not tell people their breath stinks. Don't do that, right? You're not allowed to do that, right? Daniel, don't ask people, are you going to finish that? We're not going to do that in here. Have good manners. Remember, remember your last name, right? I've, I've reminded my children, you, have, you carry a name everywhere you go. It's the name of Jesus, and it's the name of your mom and daddy. And, and there's this moment where Paul is saying, hey, just one thing. Before you step out into this world, as you go live this life, I want you to remember this one thing. Live your life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The, the CSB says it like this. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. God, I love that. Paul said, you don't, you, you're citizens of a new kingdom, right? There's this impression here of something deeper. Paul's getting at something deeper than just the surface level of our lives. He's helping us see the work of the gospel in us has eternal purpose. He's saying, you are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as kingdom of heaven citizens, you were called to live your lives in a manner worthy of what it cost Jesus to make you a citizen. He's saying, as believers in Christ, we are called to live a life worthy of what it cost Jesus to give us this life. Do you feel the weight of that? <laughs> I do. I've, it's been hard for me to get away from those words. I was thinking about, um, it reminded me of uh, a couple scenes in the movie Saving Private Ryan. You guys seen that? Uh, came out in the late 90s, 98, 99, something like that. And the movie's about a private named um, James Ryan who's in World War II. And Private Ryan's other older brothers were all killed in the war. The Army finds this out, military finds this out, and they go, this is the last remaining male in his family. So they want to get him out of the war and send him home. And they assign that responsibility uh, to a second brigade who's led by a guy named Captain Miller. That's Tom Hanks' uh, character. And Captain Miller leads his team uh, across uh, the, the landscape of the war to locate and rescue Private Ryan. And they lose men along the way. And there's this scene toward the end where Captain Miller, he's, he's on a bridge. He's been shot multiple times. He's leaning against a tank. And they've located... Uh, uh, Ryan, Private Ryan, and they're about to get him out, and he knows he's about to die. Captain Miller knows he's about to die, and he grabs James Ryan by the collar, and he pulls him in close, and he says, James, you earn this. Earn it. You remember that scene? There's this moment where he's saying, people have died to get you out of this war. Now, earn it. And then there's this scene just a moment later where he's, uh, James Ryan is standing at the memorial for Captain Miller, and he's looking down at that, and he's saying, 
Every day of my life, I remembered what you told me on that bridge, and I hope I've lived the life that earned it. Right? Now, don't hear me say we have to live a life to earn our salvation. That's not possible. Salvation is the free gift of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? Don't hear me say we're to live in such a way that proves we're worthy of the gospel. We can't. We aren't. So, so what is it that Paul is saying? Paul is saying that in a greater way and in a deeper way, Jesus has not only rescued our life, he's rescued our eternity. And the life we live should be lived in a way that, that shows we are grateful. There's a gratitude. There's a worth that we live in this life and an obedience that is in response to what it costs Jesus to rescue us from hell. That's what he's saying. It means the way we live our lives should prove and display the reality of what we say we have received and what we say we believe in Jesus. A joy, a gratitude, a courage that is born from the reality that we know Jesus is real, his kingdom is real, He's coming again, and we are with him no matter what. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Living a life worthy of the gospel means I'm going to live with a joy and a courage and an obedience in response to the reality that Jesus is real. His kingdom is real. He's coming again, and I am with him no matter what. You're going to be able to look at my life and my life will prove those things are true. That's why that word worth, a worthy, is so important. Live a life worthy. It comes from a Greek word meaning weight. There should be a, a weightiness to our lives. There should be evidence, like evidence presented in a court, right? There is a weightiness. There's an evidence that says what I say I've received and what I say I believe about Jesus is not words. It's seen in how I live. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Now remember, Paul is not talking to seasoned believers. He's talking to very young believers in the faith. He's talking to people who are trying to discover what it means to, to live for Jesus. And so he's telling them, this new life that you have found in Christ changes everything. It's transformed you, it's, it's changed you, and it has moved you away from everything that used to define you. So Lydia, I know you're a successful businesswoman, but I want you to hear me now. Because of the gospel you have received to live worthy of that, your life is no longer about making money, selling fabric, being well thought of, and being successful. It's about taking this business and asking Jesus, what do you want to do with it to advance the gospel? That's what it means. Slave girl, I realize you have spent your life being told by someone else what you're worth, but there is a new name on you. You're not a slave anymore, and no one tells you what you're worth. Christ has established your identity. It changes everything. Jailer, this is no longer about pleasing Caesar, pleasing the government, or rising through the ranks. You're a citizen of a new kingdom. You, you bow before a new king, and there is an infinitely higher value you place on your heavenly citizenship because of the gospel. Live a life now worthy of the gospel. 
So what is the gospel? Use that word all the time. I think so many times we just assume everybody knows what that means. What does the word gospel actually mean? It means what? What? Good news. It means good news. That's what the word means. The gospel is this. It is the glorious good news that our creator God has taken our sin upon himself in his son, Jesus Christ, and granted us new life by his spirit. That's the good news. The God who made you took the sin that separated you from him on himself in Christ Jesus and gave you new life by his spirit. And that gospel, listen, is endlessly rich to fill you and satisfy you and sustain you and give you joy because that gospel is the message of the unquenchable Christ Jesus. He, he is more than enough. He is, he's inexhaustible. Let's just think about Jesus for a moment. He's inexhaustible. What do I mean by that? I mean, he has, a, he has a grace that is never ending. He has mercy that is never fading. He has glory that is never ceasing. And he has love for you that is never failing. Do you believe that? Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he has made a promise to complete the work he started in you. Do you believe that? Jesus is big enough for all of your sin and all of your failure. He unites us together despite our differences. He leads us despite our foolishness. He serves us despite our unworthiness and loves us despite our sinfulness. Do you believe that? He forgives us completely, saves us utterly, cleanses us thoroughly, redeems us wholly because he sacrificed himself perfectly. And what else in this life is worthy of living for if it isn't that? Live your life worthy of that, of the gospel, of being saved completely, forgiven, made new, redeemed, bought back, no longer an orphan. I am adopted. Live a life that reflects the gratitude of one who's been purchased. And set free. That's what Paul's saying. What else would we live our life for? What else is there to establish your life upon if it isn't that? Everything else that you build your life on being successful, being a good father, good mother a good boss, making enough money, providing a good life, putting your kid in a good school, everything else that you say, I'm going to establish my life, we're going to have an identity on this. That is not this, is living a life um, that is only about, that, that honestly diminishes the gospel and doesn't magnify it. Because, see, if I can be satisfied in this life without the gospel, th th think about that. Are you living your life satisfied without the work of the gospel in you? 
Paul said, live a life that is worthy, that is, that is evidencing, displaying, proving the value of the gospel in you. So when he says this, I told you all this could be a whole sermon. It was hard for me to get past this. I promise you there's some other stuff I'm going to talk about. When he says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul isn't saying, make the gospel a part of your life. Paul is saying, live to display the glorious good news of what Christ has done for you as the center of everything in your life. That's what he's saying. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Do you feel the weight of that? <laughs> I do. So the next question I want us to answer is this. What does that look like? What does that look like? What does it look like for the church to live worthy of the gospel? Paul gives this thesis statement because he's about to call us, call the church to a courage and a unity and a strength that is impossible apart from the gospel being the center of our lives. Paul was well aware of the Philippian culture and what he wanted the church to understand is the same thing we need to understand, which is that we are in a culture where we must prove what we say we believe by the difference we live. Culture struggles to believe the gospel is glorious because they don't see the evidence lived out in the lives of those who say it's changed them. And Paul is saying, this culture needs to see a difference there's got to be an evidence in how you walk that separates you, sets you apart, proves what you say you believe and have received in Christ. So, what does this look like? When we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, there's three things I want you to see. Here's the first one. We stand together as one. We stand together as one. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul said, because of the gospel, we ought to be standing firm in one spirit with one mind. You hear the unity in that language. There is a supernatural unity that binds us together when we live transformed by the gospel. There's a supernatural unity that binds us to one another. What do I mean by that? I mean, there's something powerful that happens when I see other believers walking out their faith against the grain of culture. There's something powerful that happens. I am drawn to the believer that I see walking courageously against the grain of culture. There's something powerful that happens when I see other believers saying no to culture so that they can say yes to Jesus. There's something in that that I'm just, man, I'm drawn to it. There's a, there's a oneness that comes. When I see you saying no to the things that I'm having to say no to, and it's hard to say no to, but we're saying no together so we can say yes to Christ. There's a unity in that. There's a oneness that we share in that. When I see other believers standing firm when it's hard, being bold when it's risky, organizing their lives to prioritize the church and the people of God, 
giving away what they have to serve others and make Jesus look glorious. I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to that. Because that life stands out. It it, it sets us apart from, from culture, right? And when we stand out together, when we stand out as, as one, unified by the gospel, we prove the gospel true in our lives. When we live a life worthy of the gospel, we stand together as one. Think about this little city, Philippi. It was about 800 miles or so, a little over 800 miles from Rome. Yet, it was considered Roman. They considered themselves Roman and were very proud of their Roman citizenship. Right? They were very proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens in Philippi. Yet you have these brand new believers now who, who are citizens of Rome, which means they have to be loyal to the Roman emperor, who, by the way, considered himself a god. And so now they have to, now they're holding this thing going, wait a minute. What does it mean for us to have no other gods before the God that has just saved us? Right? What does it mean to, to, uh, to, that there is no God but, but God alone? And they are walking against the grain of a culture that says Caesar is not God. Jehovah is God. Jesus is God. How did they do that? It wasn't individuals. They had to bind together and stand as one. They became a church and they stood together against that very difficult reality. Here's the point. Unity in the gospel is essential to the life of the believer. It's essential. We cannot live without one another. When the culture demands our allegiance, when the culture demands our affection and our attention, we stand together as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. When I see you walk out your obedience, it it reminds me who I belong to. It reminds me that Jesus is worth it. That this is hard, but he's worth it. That he alone gets our... Listen, we may be citizens of the United States, and it is okay that we love our country. It's a great country, and I do. But we don't worship our country because this country didn't save us. And while we don't live in a kingdom with an emperor that demands our worship, listen to me, we live in a world and a culture with altars to foreign gods on every corner. There are altars to foreign gods everywhere you look. In the culture that we live in, we're simply holding on to what we believe is no longer just seen as different. It's now seen as hateful and oppressive and evil. Simply holding on to, to what we know to be true in Christ It didn't just seem as different anymore. It's seen as evil and oppressive. And this world continues to want to draw dividing lines between us. But in Christ and in the gospel, we unite as one church. We share one spirit and one mind, citizens of one kingdom. We stand together as one. That's the first, that's a fruit of living a life worthy of the gospel. Here's the second thing. We strive together for the gospel. Paul said in verse 27, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We not only stand together, we move together. We advance together. Jesus calls us together and then pushes us outward together to advance the gospel. We do that side by side. Again, a scene from a movie came to mind. I don't know why this always this had these movies in my brain. Who has seen 300, right? Come on. I know some of y'all seen that movie. Y'all just don't want to admit it in church. I'm sick of your nonsense, okay? <laughs> Movies 300, about the 300 Spartans, right, who stood against the invasion of Xerxes and the Persian Empire. And with 300, they held back thousands and thousands uh, of, of uh, invading uh, Persians uh, and Xerxes' massive army. And they did that, one, because every single one of them looked like they'd been chiseled out of stone, very similar to your pastor. And so the, <laughs> they did that because they had specific military training, right? One of the things they had was they would build a shield wall. Every soldier had a shield, and when the time came, they would lock these shields into place, stacking them, surrounding them over their head. And with that shield wall, inch by inch, they would advance and the enemy would throw themselves against the shield wall, and they'd rain down arrows, and they would just waste their arrows and waste their men on that because as long as the shield wall held, held they advanced inch by inch, foot by foot, and they moved and took the field. But if one soldier took a break, if one soldier wasn't fully engaged, if one soldier lowered his shield and decided he was going to step back and be a spectator of the mission, the entire unit would begin to break down. Do you see where I'm going with this? We strive together to advance the gospel. Living on mission, living a life worthy of the gospel, hear me say this, there is no such thing as a spectator. There's, this is not a spectator sport. It is being engaged in advancing the mission, standing together, striving together. <laughs> I hope you know at New Beginnings, we believe every single believer is called by God. Every single believer. This ain't just a pastor, elder, minister thing. Every single believer is called by God, which means I think each of you have been given a unique kingdom platform where God has called you to advance the gospel. Every one of you. You've been given a platform where you work to live a life worthy of the gospel. You've been given a platform where you live with your family to live a life worthy of the gospel and advance Jesus. Every believer is called. Every believer has a kingdom platform. And as you live your life worthy of the gospel in your kingdom advancing platform, and I live my life worthy of the gospel in mine, we cannot help but stand together and strive together. You do not need my permission or any minister's position, permission to share Jesus with your neighbor. They're in your kingdom platform, and you have a call from God. Walk across the street and meet a need. Love on them. Share Jesus. Jesus has commissioned you to do that. You don't have to wait for us to love your neighbor for Christ or to share Jesus with your coworker. We've been given this, this singular purpose to strive together and take Jesus to the world. So to live a life worthy of the gospel, we stand together as one. We strive 
together. We advance the gospel. Here's the last one we see. We suffer together for Christ. We suffer together for Christ. We're big fans of the first two. Let's do that. This one you're like, hmm. You want to know why this feels uncomfortable? This has been the conviction. I've said this already in a sermon before. The conviction I've had this entire sermon series, which is this. I, me, I'm pointing at me, but you're in it with me. We intentionally build lives where we never have to risk anything for Jesus. They're so comfortable. We pad our lives making sure we don't engage unbelievers. That we get as far away from the culture as we can. And we pad lives where we never have to be risky for the gospel. And so when Paul starts inviting us into the suffering for Christ, we start pushing away. But I want you to hear me. He ties this to living a life worthy of the gospel. Let's look at it. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul said it's been granted to you, not just to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for That word granted is interesting. What is a grant? It's a gift, right? It's a gift. When I went to college, I got loans and I got grants. I loved the grants, right? You want to know why? Free, gift. Here you go. Educate yourself. Paul uses that word to describe the invitation to suffer for Jesus. You have been gifted the privilege of proving Christ worthy and suffering for him. We suffer together for Christ. Right? So Paul is saying, not only will we prove Jesus by what we say we believe, will prove Jesus by what we're willing to endure for his sake, for his glory. Some of you have military experience. You've, you've been in the military. If that's you, first of all, let me just, I know Memorial Day's next weekend and all that. I want you to hear me say thank you. I'm so grateful for you. Um, and you know that soldiers who are pressing forward, moving together, are going to take on some hardship together. You're going to take on some suffering together. You're going to take on, you're going to do without comfort. You're going to do without some things together, right? Soldiers that stand together, suffer together. And in the advancement of the gospel, we are going to get beat up along the way. It's going to happen. Living a life worthy of the gospel means persecution. Anything done in this world for the sake of Christ is going to cost something. It costs Jesus. It'll cost us too, which is why Paul told his, his son in the ministry, Timothy and 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, who desire to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. We live in a culture where the only way for us to avoid persecution is to get firmly planted and comfortable in the stream of conformity to just settle into that and just ride it with the culture now I can, I can know in my heart that I belong to Jesus but I'm going to ride this stream to make sure I never bump the edges of culture and it gets uncomfortable for me to stand up 
for Jesus. Because when you get out of the stream, when you stand for the gospel, there's going to be persecution. There's, there's persecution coming when you simply stand with the truth that Jesus is God and he is the only way to heaven. You'll pay a price for holding to that and being confident in it. There's suffering coming when you stand on the truth that the Bible is not some antiquated book written by old men, but it is the divine words of God meant to be the standard of our lives. You'll pay a price for holding to that reality. There's persecution coming when you say that because every life has the image of God stamped on it, there is a, there is a sanctity and a dignity and a value of human life whether it has been born or not. You're going to pay a price for holding on to that reality. You're going to, there's persecution coming when you simply hold to the standard of how God has designed the family and marriage. Just hold on to that, and you're going to pay a price for it. You're going to be called evil, hateful, oppressive. To hold to God's word, to share the gospel, to be courageous, to be unapologetic in living your life worthy of the gospel, it's <laughs> going to cost you something. So the invitation for Jesus when he invited his disciples was essentially, come follow me, it's going to cost you everything. <laughs> It's why I use language like taking up a cross, dying to yourself, losing your life. You better count the cost because this is a battleground. It's not a playground. And how do we possibly live lives courageously like this? Alone. We can't. We need one another. We need one another. We stand together. We strive in advance together, which means we can suffer What do we do with all this? It's like, man, you're in this thing, talking about suffering. I'm just ready to go. You know what's interesting? As believers, we need suffering. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You want to know why? Suffering, persecution, hardship. This is the polish on the mirror of our life so that when we are held up to culture, they see the satisfaction and the fulfillment we have found in Jesus. It's the polish on our lives that says, no matter what it costs me, I'm standing for Christ and I'm gonna reflect him. And when I reflect that satisfaction through the lens of persecution, I hold Jesus up as glorious. We need suffering. Which is why our culture doesn't see the value of Christ when we've built lives padded from having to be risky for Jesus. Right? We need suffering. We need the church. We need the church. And I don't just mean church big C. I mean local church. You need a place not where you attend, but where you belong where you are known, where you are seen, where you are connected, where people know your name, know your family, know your struggles, and know your battle for the faith. You need a place where you belong. Which means some of you need to join New Beginnings. You've been attending, 
How do I do that? Two ways. One, if you've never been baptized after salvation, has there been a moment where you've made Jesus the Lord of your life? Yes. Have you been baptized after that? No, you need to be baptized. That is the unifying experience we share as a public declaration that we together in this place belong to Christ. And then we have something called Discover Membership Class. The very next one of those that happens, you need to go, you need to stop dating and let's get married. Right? Some of y'all are serial church daters. You need to come on. You need the church. But before you need the church, and before you can suffer for Christ, you need salvation. Only Christ can give you the joy Paul is talking about. That only happens in Christ. Only Christ can make you right with God. And some of you know this morning, I am, you know, I'm not right with God. There's something in me that knows it. And if that's you this morning, you know you are not right with God. Listen to me. Only Christ can make you right. Only Christ can cleanse you and forgive you and wash you and make you new. Only Jesus can make you a citizen of heaven. And in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And in that moment, you need to step out and you just need to come tell somebody. I need Christ. I need salvation. Salvation is turning from your sins. It's turning from your way. It's turning away from your good works so that you can turn to Christ. Some of you need to do that today. If you need to be baptized, come and tell us. If you need Jesus, come and tell us. Maybe like me, this morning has been just a morning of of conviction and you just need to come get at the altar and pray and say, God, forgive me for building a life that is so comfortable I never have to risk anything. Show me what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Lord Jesus, I pray that for the next few moments you would move in our room. Holy Spirit, we need you. We are hopeless apart from you, so move in us, stir us. Call us out to the deeper waters of obedience and glory with you. In Jesus' name, amen.